The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Before we begin our study of God's word, we need to make sure we're in fellowship as always. It's God the Holy Spirit who makes the word of God understandable to us. That doesn't mean we always understand it the first time, the second time, or even the third time we hear it, because we have to relate what he makes understandable to us to our own uh, level of spiritual growth, our own level of advance. And sometimes that just takes a little time as we run into new vocabulary, new concepts, and new categories. But the Holy Spirit always makes it understandable because the spiritual life is a unique life based upon ultimately the power of God the Holy Spirit. He helps us to understand the Word. He stores it in our soul. He brings it to our memory so that we can recall it at times of application. And He's the one who produces spiritual growth. He only does that when we're walking by means of the Spirit and we often stumble and stop walking by the Spirit when we sin. So we need to have a grace recovery mechanism and God's given that to us in 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the instant we admit or acknowledge our sins to Him, then at that instant we are forgiven. The slate's wiped clean. Those sins are no longer an issue in terms of separating us from God, no matter how horrible those sins might have been, no matter how guilty we may feel. At that instant we need to rely on the promise of God that He forgives us, And at that point, we can go forward in our spiritual life. So we start with a few moments of silent prayer, and then we begin. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that we have the opportunity to study your word and that you have revealed yourself to us and revealed your will to us in a manner that is not to obfuscate or to uh, obscure, but to make clear and lucid. And it is only our sinfulness, it is only our unwillingness to face what it says that prevents us from understanding clearly what you have communicated. Now, Father, under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we pray that we would... uh, be able to understand these things, that they would be clear to us, and that they would be profitable for our spiritual growth and edification. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When we come to a study of the Scriptures, one of the fundamental issues is always interpretation. And we live in an era when people want to interpret the Bible in any way that they deem fits their own way of looking at life, their own presuppositions, their own inclinations, and to justify whatever it is that they're already doing. 
But there are rules to interpretation, which I always say is clear on April 15th, because that's when you have to interpret how you how you fill out your income tax return. And if most people who interpret the Bible in some sort of allegorical, non-literal, or spiritualized way interpreted the instructions to fill out their income tax return the same way, they would all be in jail. Perhaps that would not be a bad idea after all. But nevertheless, interpretation is crucial to being able to understand the Scriptures. And one canon of interpretation is that the Bible must always be interpreted in the time in which it was written means you have to understand the historical background. Second canon of interpretation is the Scriptures must be uh, interpreted in a consistent, literal manner. And a third canon is that Scriptures must be interpreted in context. Now, we are studying Daniel, and Daniel in context is not a book of prophecy. Well, it contains prophecy, and a lot of people enjoy studying the prophecies in Daniel, and some of the greatest and most significant prophecies in all the Bible are located in Daniel. But Daniel was not written primarily or foremostly to be a book on prophecy, but a book on wisdom, a book on wise living. However we interpret Daniel, however we apply Daniel, we must first and foremost understand that principle. Daniel was written for the purpose of teaching people how to live wisely, how to have skill in living in Satan's world. How one individual, for the most part, stood firm, stood strong against an entire civilization that was against him, a civilization that was steeped in paganism. It teaches us how one individual can have skill in coping with the kingdom of man, with the paganism that surrounds us in our non-Christian culture. So it's a contrast between one lone believer and the society around him. Daniel, through the prophecies in Daniel, answers the question for us, who wins? Ultimately, in this struggle, there is a victor, and that victor, we learn, is the Lord Jesus Christ. That victory comes towards the end of human history. And so we have to realize that prophecy relates to history And so much of what we discover in Daniel is to clue us in it as to what God's plan and purposes are for history. But the purpose for that is not just to titillate our curiosity about the future, but is given to comfort the believer so that he can endure with steadfast obedience during times of testing and trial. It's necessary for us to understand what God is doing in history for us to understand what our priorities should be that we should devote our time and our energy and our talent to that which survives and endures throughout eternity and not that which is just good for the moment or good for a short amount of time. By studying prophecy, we understand that which has eternal value and can distinguish it from that which has limited value. By studying prophecy, we learn how to have stability in the midst of confusion, how to orient our life because we know what the future holds. We understand what continues, what endures, what survives, and we know what doesn't. And above all, we understand the principle that Jesus Christ controls history, that history is His story. History is the outworking of God's plan and purposes, so we don't have to succumb to the fear tactics of those who would have us think that somehow man will destroy himself, that somehow man will 
destroy his environment or blow himself up in some nuclear holocaust or whatever the fad uh, terrorist uh, doctrine is of that particular decade. Every decade, the fear mongers come out and promote some new doctrine that man is going to destroy himself in some other way. And then they get everybody all energized and they pass reams of legislation that take away more and more freedoms rather than realizing like the believer does that we can just relax. We don't have to try to save the planet because Jesus Christ controls the planet. We can't save it and we can't destroy it. It's outside of our control. And that's one thing we learn from from doctrine. Now, as we get into Daniel 2, we're down to... The latter part of the chapter will start, look briefly at what we see in Daniel 31, just to remind you a little bit about where, the, um, where we are in terms of the structure of the book. In Daniel chapter 1, we learned that Daniel and a number of other hostages were taken from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar back to Babylon. And in Babylon, they were taken through a three-year training program where they were inculcated with all of the uh, science, all of the mythology, all the mathematics, all the astronomy, astrology, all the religious thinking of the Babylonians in order to train them and prepare them to function as high-level bureaucrats in the government of Babylon. These men were not dumb. They weren't even average thinkers. They had all passed a whatever they used for an intelligence evaluation exam at that time. And they were the cream of the crop. They were the smartest in all of Israel. About that time, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, just about, as we put it together, just prior to their graduation. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and that dream disturbed him. It came at a time in Nebuchadnezzar's life when he had had tremendous military victories. He had defeated the Assyrians. He had defeated the Egyptians. He had brought the Levant under his control. That's the area surrounding the Mediterranean. He had brought Judah and Israel under his uh, hegemony so that he controlled the power, the, all the power bases in the ancient world. And he was the mightiest man in the world and he had the greatest empire in the world. On top of that, he was the wealthiest man in the world and he had tremendous native ability and native talent. So he was at the top of his game probably around 30 years of age, when suddenly God gave him this dream. And the dream bothered him. He didn't know what it meant, but he sensed that somehow this indicated that all that he had given his life for, all that he had devoted himself to, all that he had built was temporary. It was finite. It would eventually blow away like the dust, and so he was disturbed. So he went to those he trusted to give him answers. And he challenged them to give him answers, and then they couldn't. Because the human viewpoint system, the pagan system of the world can never give us answers to life's problems. It can't give ultimate solutions. It can't give answers to the questions about the nature of the soul, eternal life, is there an afterlife, is there eternity, what is ultimately good and what is ultimately ultimately bad. Nebuchadnezzar realized it was like building the finest boat in the world and then having no maps, no plans, nowhere to go. And that's what happens in paganism. You're left adrift upon a world of chance and a world of chaos where there's no direction, no plan, and no purpose. So he reacted in anger when his leaders would not answer him because he gave him a simple test. If your system is really true, let's put it to the test. You not only interpret the dream for me, 
but you tell me what the dream was. And then they crawfished. They couldn't tell him what the dream was. They said, nobody can do that. Only God could do that. There's no way any person can do that. No king ever asked anybody to do that. And Nebuchadnezzar said, well, if you can't do it and your system's false, then I'm tired of everybody lying to me, so you're all going to die. And he sent out the execution squads, and he was going to turn their homes, their houses, into public uh, latrines to show exactly what he thought of all of them. And while the execution squads went out, we saw they came to Daniel and his three friends. And Daniel knew that God would give him the uh, meaning of the dream, reveal the dream to him and its interpretation. And so he went to the king. And there he, we stopped last time as he was about to tell the king the dream and its interpretation. This we read starting in Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. There we read, You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we shall tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, or the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky... He has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. And after you there will arise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as iron. And as much as iron crushes and shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And in that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it it will itself endure forever. And as much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Now, this is one of the greatest outlines of human history ever penned. And, of course, it is one of the greatest ever penned in the Bible. As you can tell from just this cursory reading of these verses, 
It is a tale of kingdoms. The kingdoms of man versus the ultimate kingdom of God that will destroy the kingdoms of man. The kingdoms of man are temporal, they're finite. The kingdoms of man are represented in all their finest as viewed from man's perspective. They're viewed as gold, silver, bronze, precious metals. But the kingdom of God is a kingdom that destroys all of man's finest. Now, when it comes to interpreting these verses, we have to recognize that there is a bit of controversy as to how to interpret these verses. Not just this chapter, but also the various prophecies in Daniel. And as we continue our study in Daniel, we'll see that in Daniel 5, in Daniel 7, in Daniel 9, in Daniel 10, as we go through this, we keep coming back to foundational images that are established in this prophecy. Failure to correctly interpret this prophecy means that latter prophecies in Daniel will also be poorly understood. Not only that, but Daniel chapter 2 is the basis for how you approach every other prophecy in Scripture. If you, the way you approach this prophecy will determine how you interpret Daniel, I mean Matthew 24 and 25, uh, Revelation, Zechariah, Zephaniah, many of the other uh, prophets in the Old Testament. Therefore, it is crucial for us to stop a little bit before we get into the details of this uh, statue in order to understand a framework for prophecy. What are the major discrepancies, disagreements, the controversies over the interpretation of prophecy that affect how you interpret Daniel chapter 2? So we are going to begin this evening by looking at the fact that there are basically three views of prophecy. And remember, since prophecy is history told before time, they tell us something about three distinct Christian views of history. How you interpret history is ultimately going to affect many things, from how you interpret law, politics, authority, family. It would affect your view of sociology, your views of society, culture. The ramifications go on and on. We're not just talking about salvation and spiritual life. We're talking about the profound implications in almost every arena of human intellection that flows from an understanding of prophecy. That's why prophecy is so important. In the history of Christianity, there's never been a creedal statement written about prophecy. It's not like the doctrines on Trinitarianism uh, hammered out at the Council of Nicaea. The doctrines on Christology, which were penned at the Council of Chalcedon. It's not like uh, some of the statements that were formulated by the uh, Reformed churches, like the Helvetica Confession, the Geneva Confession, the Westminster Confession, and Augsburg Confession for the Lutherans. It is, prophecy has never been There's never been a formal statement of prophecy adopted by any denomination. Now, there are some denominations that that do take specific stands on prophecy, but many, many others don't. One reason people stay away from prophecy and they're a bit afraid of prophecy, perhaps, is because it covers so much of Scripture. My belief is that understanding of prophecy is foundational to understanding almost every area of Scripture. If you have a distorted view of prophecy, you may be distorted on other areas of Scripture as well. Prophecy is a vast subject, covers almost every book of Scripture, 
involves a tremendous amount of detail, and I think that scares off a lot of people. Then you always have the folks who are pan-millennialists. You know, there's those who are pre-millennialists, post-millennialists, and amillennialists, but the pan-millennialist just thinks it'll all pan out in the end. They're the ones who don't really want to think too much, and once they start thinking about prophecy, uh, you know, smoke just comes out of their ears, and you start hearing the gears grind and, and the teeth breaking off the gears, and they decide to shut down and just go back to something simple like maybe uh, uh, soteriology. But biblical prophecy is important. I've often heard people say, well, I don't want to teach prophecy. In fact, not long ago, I heard someone in a church say, my pastor never teaches prophecy because... He thinks that if he does that, people will just come to be uh, hear the sensational, and so he's not going to do it. And I thought, what a supercilious, self-righteous attitude. Prophecy is crucial. We need to be taught in Daniel, in Revelation, the other prophecy passages. For one thing, God revealed them to us for our edification, and we need to learn them. To say we don't need to and you're going to ignore it is to say that, God, you really didn't need to take the effort because it's not relevant. Walt Kaiser, in a book called Back Toward the Future, Hints for Interpreting Bible Prophecy, states, The number of prophecies in the Bible is so large and their distribution so evenly spread through both testaments and all types of literary forms that the interpreter is alerted to the fact that he or she is dealing with a major component of the Bible. In fact, another writer on biblical prophecy, who wrote, had it, published an encyclopedia of biblical prophecy by the name of J. Barton Payne, calculated that 28% of the Bible deals with prophecy. Only the small books in the Old Testament of Ruth and Song of Solomon, and uh, in the New Testament, the tiny epistles of Philemon and Third John, have no prophecy whatsoever. In fact, Kaiser goes on to state that the highest percentages of predictive material are found in the small books of Zephaniah, which is 89% prophecy, Obadiah, which is 81% prophecy, Nahum, which is 74% prophecy. In the New Testament, the honors go to Revelation, which is 63% prophecy, Hebrews is 45% prophecy, and Second Peter 41% prophecy. That tells us that prophecy is indeed important. Furthermore, when we're asked the question, why study prophecy, we need to realize that 28% of the Bible, at least, that's a conservative view, I think it might have been closer to 40, was prophetic when it was originally revealed. 28% was prophetic when it was originally revealed. 15% of the Bible is still unfulfilled prophecy. Of that, 18% of the New Testament epistles are unfulfilled prophecy. One out of every five verses. Furthermore, one in 12 verses in the New Testament refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And one in 10 verses in the epistles refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And one individual has stated that as many as 60% of the New Testament verses are affected in terms of their interpretation by eschatology issues. 60% of the verses in the New Testament are affected by... That's, eschatology is a fancy word for prophecy. It means the study of the last days. 
60% of the verses in the New Testament are affected by eschatology issues in order to be properly understood. Anytime you run across the word kingdom, the word mystery, uh, automatically that you have to understand eschatology before you can get uh, properly interpret or understand those particular verses. Many of the parables that Jesus taught in the Gospels relate to one degree or another to prophecy or their interpretation is indirectly affected by how we understand prophecy. Prophecy is vital to our spiritual life and to understand and orient to what God is doing in history. So with that in mind, we have to study prophecy. Now, one of the books I had to read when I was doing my doctoral work in church history was a book by James Orr called The Progress of Dogma. Now, Orr wrote at the turn of the century, well, now I can't say that now, the turn of the last century, beginning of the 20th century, and Orr developed an interesting theory, and there's a certain amount of truth to it. And he developed the idea that during the 1900 years of church history up to that time, there was a progress, a clear progress in how Christians came to understand doctrine. We started off in the first couple of centuries trying to understand the Trinity, the relationship of God the Father to God the Son. And you had the great Trinitarian controversies that were resolved uh, by the Council of Nicaea. That was followed by the Christological controversies over Apollinarianism, Eutychianism, Nestorianism, and those were finalized at Chalcedon. Following that, the church spent a great deal of time trying to probe the understanding of the atonement. What exactly is the nature of the atonement? And it was Anselm that wrote the uh, treatise Cur Deus Homo, which defined the nature of substitutionary atonement, which became standard for much of the Middle Ages. And then by the Reformation, there was a recovery of the soteriological doctrines, the doctrines of salvation that had been taught earlier, and a clear defining of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And that was hammered out by Luther, Calvin, and many others. And then as you go through the subsequent centuries, 17th century, 18th century, they hammered out their better understanding of the nature of the church, and it's worked. There was disagreement there. There was never any consensus, never any uh, creedal, ecumenical creedal. By ecumenical, I use that for, in this context in a positive way because the early creeds were called ecumenical because you only had one church. So everybody got together and agreed, on, and that became the, the standard definitions for orthodoxy. But you don't have that kind of agreement anymore after the Reformation. Or thought that eschatology would be the final area of theology to be clarified. And he predicted that in the 20th century, that would be the focus where much work would be done to finally understand eschatology. And I think much work was done to understand eschatology, but there's also been many battles between these three different groups of individuals and how they understand prophecy. So we're going to look at these three ways this week and next week to try to understand this framework, and I'm going to approach it a slightly different way than I have before to let some of their advocates speak for, for themselves to give you a different perspective on what they believe, and we'll approach it differently from how we have in the past. There are three basic views 
and they are amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism. Amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism. Amillennialism is portrayed in the chart that you have up on the screen. Numerically, this is the most popular view. Large, by far the vast majority of Christians and evangelical Christians in America are amillennial. Now, when we look at this thing, I want to define, I want to look at a couple of different ways, a couple of different issues to define millennialism. Two things we have to look at. The first is the relationship of the church to the kingdom. The relationship of the church to the kingdom, the messianic kingdom. The kingdom refers to that time in history when the Messiah would come to rule over Israel. When the king would be on planet earth reigning over all the nations. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Messiah, is God's answer to the kingdom of Nimrod first established in Genesis 10 at the Tower of Babel. So this is the key, is understanding the relationship of the kingdom to the church. So in amillennialism, the church is the kingdom. The church is a spiritual form of the kingdom. There's not a literal kingdom. There is a spiritual kingdom. So that the church age, the age in which we now live, is synonymous with the millennial age. You didn't know you were living in the utopic millennium, did you? So we are now living in the spiritual kingdom. And it ends with a literal second coming of Jesus Christ, at which time history ends and we go into the eternal state. This is amillennialism. It is the, of the three schools that, are, that we're looking at here, amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism, it's the only prophetic school or theology that is officially held by denominations today. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, an Orthodox Presbyterian Church and the Christian Reformed Church all officially hold to this position. It's unofficially held by many Baptist churches, many churches of Christ, and by Roman Catholicism and the Anglican Church. Unofficially. The second view is postmillennialism. Postmillennialism. Now the words ah, ah in ah millennial and post and postmillennialism and pre and premillennialism have to do with how they understand the relationship of Christ coming to the millennium. Ah is the prefix for no, or in English we use un. There's no literal millennium, so Christ's coming isn't related to that because there's not a millennium. In postmillennialism, they believe there is a literal utopic kingdom on the earth, and the church brings in the kingdom. For amillennialism, the church is the kingdom. Postmillennialism, the church is going to bring in the kingdom. It's going to happen slowly, imperceptibly, by degrees. As the Holy Spirit expands the influence of Christianity, the church is going to conquer and subdue, and the kingdom will come in. And then Jesus Christ is going to return afterward. So postmillennialism maintains that the church produces the kingdom in history. Now, in recent years, postmillennialism has had a resurgence. It was a dominant view in liberal theology at the end of the 19th century, and it was just wiped out by World War I, that optimism 
that they had that things were going to get better and better in every way and we're going to bring in a utopic society was blown away by the realities of chemical warfare and trench warfare in World War I. Uh, Post-millennialism also tended to die at about that time, but it had a resurgence in the late 70s and now has become more and more popular. And then the view that we hold here at Preston City Bible Church is pre-millennialism that Jesus Christ will return physically to the earth before the millennium. And the church precedes the kingdom. In amillennialism, the church is the kingdom. Postmillennialism, the church brings in the kingdom. And in premillennialism, the church is not the kingdom. It doesn't bring in the kingdom, but it precedes the kingdom. And Jesus Christ comes back to inaugurate and establish the kingdom at the second coming. Now, let's set up a little chart here to help understand what some of these issues are. And I've outlined three questions. We have issue, the issue will be stated, and then we'll look at how it's treated in premillennialism, amillennialism, and then postmillennialism. First question Christ's return ends history. Christ's return ends history. Does the return of Jesus Christ end history? For the The second question is, the kingdom of God will at some time dominate this world's culture? Will the kingdom of God at some time dominate this world's culture? And then the third issue is, how long does evil remain? Does it remain in force until Christ returns or not? First question. In terms of Christ's return and history, the amillennialists believe that Christ's return ends history. Remember, the church is coextensive with the kingdom, and when Jesus Christ returned, that ends history, and the eternal state begins. The same is true for the post-millennialist. Christ's return comes at the end of the millennium, and then the heavens and earth are destroyed, and then God establishes the eternal state. That might not be correct for all post-millennialists. There's a new group coming up, and these they believe that all prophecy was fulfilled. All prophecy, everything, everything was fulfilled in 70 A.D., so you're now living in heaven. You didn't know that, did you? You're now living in heaven. Well, most post-millennialists don't believe they're living in heaven. They think that somehow they're in the millennium, but I think we're, that's true, that I must be living in a millennial ghetto. Second issue, what's the relationship of the kingdom of God to the world's culture? Will the kingdom of God dominate the world's culture? Premillennialism says, yes, it will, but not until Jesus Christ returns. When Jesus Christ returns, it will dominate the world's culture, and the world's culture will be ruled by the saints. And Jesus Christ will be the ultimate ruler of all the earth. Amillennialists deny that. They do not think the kingdom of God will ever dominate this world's culture. And when Jesus Christ comes back, he'll simply destroy this world's culture. Postmillennialists would agree with premills at this point because, remember, they're gradually bringing in the kingdom, so they're gradually going to take over the world's culture. And as, a, as one positive thing about postmillennialists, they're one of the few groups that are actually engaged at an intellectual level trying to work out what it means to have a Christian view of history, Christian view of philosophy, Christian view of arts, Christian view of music, Christian view of literature, Christian view of law and politics. Why? Because in their view, the church is going to take over, gradually take over all these different aspects of culture. 
Now, premillennialists ought to be doing that as well. But we're afraid to because we're so convinced that Jesus is coming back tomorrow that most premillennials have folded their hands and escaped the culture around them rather than actively engaging it on the basis of divine viewpoint. Now, what about the third question? The third question is whether or not evil will remain until Christ returns. The premillennialist says evil will remain in all of its horror and all of its force until Jesus Christ returns only under his power will it be defeated. The amillennialists would agree. They think evil will continue until Jesus returns and only then will it be defeated. But the postmillennialist, excuse me, the postmillennialist is, a, is an optimist. He thinks the church is somehow going to overpower evil. That's where they're a bit naive and dangerous. I believe. So that gives us a little orientation to three views, pre-mill, amill, and post-mill. Now, what I want to do now is look at each one of these, where they came from, and what they hold to. And the reason I want to do that is because I think a lot of times in our churches, we never spend a whole lot of attention talking about church history. And somehow it's it's, uh, we, we feel historically disengaged. We don't understand that we have beliefs that are rooted in beliefs and in, in doctrines that were clearly taught in the early church. And that there is a historical continuity, and that means that our faith is an apostolic faith. In fact, the faith, I would argue that the faith of amillennialism and postmillennialism is not an apostolic faith, but was introduced later. So let's begin by looking at just a little bit on the origin and history and the basic features, characteristics of premillennialism. First of all, we could say that the premillennial position goes as far back as perhaps 100 B.C. That's right, 100 B.C., at least 200 years before John wrote Revelation, 100 years before Jesus Christ was born. Now, what would, I, what would I base that on? Well, there's a group of books that were never accepted by the Jews into the Old Testament canon of Scripture called the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha were a collection of books that were written in the period between the Testaments, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And they are good history. They give good background. They provide information about what was going on in Israel during that intertestamental period of time, so that by reading that literature, we can get a good handle on how people who lived at the time of Christ thought, what their beliefs were, how the people who John the Baptist ministered to, um, what they believed, how they, how they acted, what they were expecting in terms of the Messiah. Two of those books are First and Second Enoch. First and Second Enoch, they're not inspired, they're not canonical, they're not infallible, but they give us a, a, a peek at the beliefs at that time. And it is in those books that there's some interest in the coming of Messiah. They, they provide a glimpse into the eschatology, the prophecy, the understanding of prophecy at the ancient world. And they tell us something about the kind of kingdom that the people at that time, at the time when Jesus was born, were, were expecting. And in those two books, two apparently new ideas about the New Testament came out. We're talking about a hundred years before Christ. Two ideas developed as they studied the Old Testament prophecies. 
The first of those ideas is that the coming messianic kingdom would not be permanent. That the coming messianic kingdom would not be permanent. Now, most thought that it would be permanent. The Messiah would come and establish a permanent kingdom. But they did not think it would be permanent, but it would be a temporary kingdom because they appreciated the depths of depravity of the human heart. They understood Jeremiah when he said, The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? And so they realized that even the rule and reign of the Messiah would not be enough to completely remove the effects of sin and to root out the depravity that had invaded the universe. And so they knew that even though the Messianic reign was a perfect reign, it was not a reign that was without sin. That it would not be able to root out all of the evil, suffering, sickness, disease, and horror that's part of the experience in a fallen world. They thought the Messianic kingdom would last but a short time, and after which there would be an eternal state. Now that's clearly a premillennial position, that the Messiah would come before the kingdom. The second thing they came up with, which is interesting, is they are the ones who first originated a septimillennial view of history. Now there's a big word, septimillennial. Septa is seven, millennial is a thousand, that just as God created the uh, heavens and the earth, or created the earth, the restoration period of six days in Genesis 6, and rested on the seventh, that human history would be 6,000 years long, and then the last period, the last age, would be a 1,000 years in length. So they came up with the idea that the Messianic kingdom would be a 1,000 years in length, 200 years before... God revealed that to the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 20. You don't have to go to Revelation 20 to get a thousand-year figure. It was already there as part of the spiritual economy of the ancient world at the time that our Lord Jesus Christ appeared on the earth. Now, I don't believe that the septimillennial view is biblical or correct, but that was what they developed at that time. So it gives us a bit of an idea was what these ideas were. Now, since these ideas dominated the world, the, the cultural milieu of John's time, then it would be, if John disagreed with those ideas, don't you think it would be up to John to make it clear that he was taking another position? But John did not take another position. And so we move from the period before Christ to the period during the, the apostolic period. And there we turn to Revelation chapter 20 and look at the first ten verses there to understand our basic passage, our core text for understanding a premillennial view of history. That begins in verse 1. There John says, this is after the tribulation, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, I want you to count how many times in these ten verses we read the figure a thousand years. That's one. Verse 3. And threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus 
and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Verse 7, And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sands of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So six times John emphasizes the figure a thousand years. That's not a figure that should be taken symbolically or a figure that should be taken allegorically or spiritualized to mean, you know, the whole church age period, which has now lasted 2,000 years, or that it's not uh, just a, a figure of perfection. It is to be taken as a literal number of, of 1,360 day years. I say 360 days because as we've studied in the past, the prophetic year used by the Jews was a, a calendar based on a 30-day month or a 360-day year. So, the New Testament reveals that there would be a return of Jesus Christ, which occurs at the end of chapter 19 in Revelation, and precedes this 1,000-year period. It ends, it's 1,000 years where the devil is locked away and cannot influence mankind. At the end of the 1,000 years, he's released. There's a quick rebellion. God destroys those who revolt against him. And then... The earth is destroyed by fire, and God establishes the new heavens and new earth. That is the basic framework for premillennialism. Now, what happened to premillennialism? We've seen that it came into, that it was available for people to understand before Christ. It was clearly revealed in Revelation. What happened after that? What happened in the post apostolic period? Well, in the age from 100 to 400 AD, Every major church historian, whether they're premillennial, amillennial, or postmillennial, no matter what they believe, every major church historian worth their salt will say that the majority view of the early church fathers was premillennial. All the major leaders of that time in history were premillennial. Men like Tertullian, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, uh, Papias, Polycarp, many, many others were premillennial. Millennial. For example, we have a statement from Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr learned his doctrine from men who studied directly under the apostles. Justin Martyr wrote in the Dialogue of Justin, in chapter 81, he states, But I and whoever are on all points like-minded, in other words, other Christians, know that there will be a resurrection of the dead and a thousand years in Jerusalem which will then be built, adorned, and enlarged as the prophets Ezekiel, Isaiah, and others declare. 
Furthermore, he states, and further, there was a certain man with us whose name was John, one of the apostles of Christ who prophesied by a revelation that was made to him that those who believed in our Christ would dwell a thousand years in Jerusalem and that thereafter the general and, in short, the eternal resurrection and judgment of all men would likewise take place. How much more clear could one be? Another individual who was quite important in the ancient church was Irenaeus. He was the bishop of Lyon in France, and he wrote in his book Contra Heresis, Against Heresies, uh, he wrote the following, But when this Antichrist shall have devastated all things in this world, he will reign for three years and six months and sit in the temple of Jerusalem, and then the Lord will come from heaven in the clouds in the glory of the Father, sending this man and those who follow him into the lake of fire, but bringing in for the righteous the times of the kingdom. See, Christ returns before the kingdom. And this is the Sabbath rest, the hallowed day, and restore to Abraham the promised inheritance. Notice that last. He sees that the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the Abrahamic covenant will be eventually literally fulfilled in the future. See, this brings in another distinctive of premillennialism, and that is a distinction between Israel and the church, that God has a literal plan and purpose for Israel, and that he has not fulfilled those promises yet, and he will at some future date when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. So even the early church fathers understood that Christ's return was before the kingdom, and that during the kingdom the inheritance, the, the rewards, the promises to Abraham would be fulfilled. Now, if that was the dominant view in the early church, and it was also called chiliasm from the Latin, uh, chile meaning uh, our, our Greek for thousand, the, the premillennialism was mili from the thousand, meaning a thousand years that Christ comes premillennial, and chiliasm from chili meaning uh, a thousand in Greek. So why did this die out? Well, it died out for three basic reasons. First was political. Can you imagine that? The church being affected by the political climate? Well, that's what happened. Remember the first 300 years, the church was persecuted. The church was uh, outlawed by Rome. There were many different persecutions. There were only two or three mass persecutions. There were many persecutions that went on throughout the empire. But after Constantine became emperor and legalized Christianity, in fact, he made it, the mandatory state religion, at that point they became the church triumphant. They were no longer the church persecuted. They were the church triumphant. And now the church had a political power base. So they began to, began to identify themselves with the kingdom. And as a result, obviously, if the church is now in a position of power and running things and they're the kingdom, then premillennialism must have been wrong. So the idea began to die off. And it wasn't long before it was gone. Second thing that happened was the philosophical influence that took place against uh, the Christianity at that time. One of the dominant philosophies in, in the Greek world, the Greco-Roman world, was Neoplatonism. As part of Neoplatonism, matter was inherently evil and only the spiritual was good. We've seen the problem that that created in Gnosticism uh, 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 where you separated matter and spirit. Well, this had an impact on some of the early church fathers. Now, none of them went quite that far. 
But they just couldn't quite reconcile the significance of matter. A material world just couldn't be as important as a spiritual. The spiritual had to be so much better. How could God have a physical kingdom when matter isn't as important as spiritual? So men like Origen. Origen introduced, by the way, he was the first one to introduce an allegorical or spiritual way of interpreting Scripture. So things didn't mean what they said literally, but they had just a symbolic value. That Noah's Ark really didn't have to happen historically. It just represented something, a spiritual truth. So when you come to Revelation 20, it talks about a thousand years. It didn't happen literally. It's just a, a figure for something more significant. So Origen and Augustine reacted to that. They were both influenced by Neoplatonism. And furthermore, there were some millennialists who had distorted the idea of a literal kingdom into almost what we would say today is like a a Muslim view of the kingdom where it was just one big drunken orgy. And it was very, the people gave themselves over to the lust of the flesh. So they had the idea that matter was inherently evil. And Augustine wrote a book called The Kingdom of God, which was probably the most influential book all throughout the Middle Ages. And in the kingdom of God, he emphasized an amillennial view so that from the fourth, about 400 on, everybody is thinking in terms of amillennialism and only a few people here and there show up who go back to a literal interpretation of Christianity. Then the third thing that influenced the uh, interpretation of prophecy was that there was a progressive anti-Semitism in the church. Anti-Semitism is one of the most horrible things in the world, and it's one of Satan's tools because Satan is trying to destroy Israel and remove them from off the face of the planet so God can't literally fulfill his promises to them. He thinks that if he can do that, he'll win. And so the church became more and more anti-Semitic and began to pass laws against Jews so that uh, Jews were compelled, Hebrew Christians were compelled to deny their Jewishness. Now, premillennialism is based on an ultimate fulfillment of the Old Testament promises to Israel. But if Israel is now bad because they crucified Christ, then there's no longer any reason for us to expect that God is going to keep his promises to those horrible Jews after all. So they, uh, not only did they begin to persecute Jews, but they wrote special creeds for Hebrew Christians that uh, were different from the creeds of the Gentiles, and they had to uh, purge themselves of all of their Jewishness. They had to renounce everything that they had, had to do with, with Jews, and they wanted, the church wanted to purge itself of Jewish dreams and millennial hopes, and so the Jews had to renounce that there would ever be a future Jewish state or that Israel would ever be the future capital of the world, or that Israel would ever be the nation that all the other nations would go to for blessing. So there was a progressive anti-Semitism. Now, following Augustine throughout the Middle Ages, from 400 to 1600, the church was predominantly uh, amillennial. And then we have the Reformation, and at the Reformation, they continue to be amillennial. They only applied a literal interpretation to to salvation, but not to eschatology. For example, in the Lutheran Augsburg Confession, they write, Jewish opinions that before the resurrection of the dead, the godly shall occupy the kingdom of the world, the wicked being everywhere oppressed, we deny. 
So they continue to reject that idea. There continue to be this latent anti-Semitism. Also, in the Reformed churches, those who followed Calvin, the second, in the second Helvetic Confession, they, they stated, we condemn Jewish dreams that before the day of judgment there shall be a golden age on the earth. And so it was only later, as liter- a literal interpretation began to have its impact on the church, into the 1600s and 1700s, that men began to interpret the Bible literally. Men like Increase Mather and Cotton Mather among the Puritans in this country. Later, John Wesley and others began to become moved towards a premillennial view. And then in the 19th century, you had men like John Nelson Darby who developed the dispensational approach to the study of Scripture. And then the great prophecy conferences at the end of the 1800s, like the Niagara Bible conferences and the Northfield conferences that Moody had uh, just north of here up in Massachusetts. And there was a tremendous return to a premillennial view of history that has carried through and produced many great seminaries and Bible colleges into the 20th century, like Dallas Seminary and Talbot Seminary and Northwest Baptist, uh, I mean, uh, Western Baptist Conservative. Western Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary, and many other schools. And it's had a fantastic impact on missions, because, especially missions to Jews, because there was a recognition that God would return His favor to Israel and that there would be a restoration of the nation in the land. And so there were many, uh, many, many missionaries who went to Jews to give them the gospel. Well, that gives us the historical background. And next time, what I want to do is to take the time to look at the basic characteristics of premillennialism, and then we'll compare and contrast it to amillennialism and postmillennialism. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to look at history, that history turns on your will and your plan, and that focused on the cross where all of our sins were paid for. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who without hope, without eternal life, that right now they would make that decision and they would put their faith and trust in Christ alone for their salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we've learned and help us to understand that your word impacts every area of our thought. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.